Well, we are in the third Sunday of Advent, and the candle of joy has been lit. And the text that they read is the text that we'll be in this morning. So open your Bibles if you have them. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. And these magi, or these, you know, we call them wise men, or sometimes we call them the three kings, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, with exceeding great joy. What, what is that all about? It's actually one of the most common uh, stories of our Advent season, you know, the journey of these magi from a faraway land, and we have our nativity sets with the camels and the kings and these, you know, mysterious dark figures they are presenting these gifts, and we're going to look at the text that that's rooted in this morning, and we're going to find that it's a little bit different than what our imaginations portray, but there's something about it that I think is rich for us this morning. And as I told you earlier, kind of during the announcement part of this, I don't know about you, but like, I'm, my life is crazy right now with this Christmas blitz. You know, the, the concerts, the recitals, they, they've hit a crescendo in this last week. And I, I know this is true. Many of you, in fact, I was at a dinner party on Friday night comparing notes with the couple on my right, the couple on my left, and they were, we were like living the same thing. It's like the violin, the, the soccer, the, the chorus, the, everything is hitting right now on this time. And yet we want to slow down to be together. Advent as a season was given to us for the nourishment of our souls. Now, I'm not talking about Advent, the event. I'm talking about the, the church's traditional celebration of Advent was given to, to have us pause, to have us slow down, to have us reflect. And we've been so sped up. I hope that you're finding that these Sundays or these weekends in Advent are time for you to reflect a little bit. And so we're going to find something in our text this morning that's very, very simple. In fact, I'm going to say a lot more than this, but I think you could just boil the whole message down to two things you need to know this morning. Two things you need to know as you're leaning into this last week of Advent, um, sprinting or, or, or you know, the Christmas blitz as you're kind of might refer to it as, and a week from now, we will be in Christmas Eve. What are the two things we need to lock onto between now and then? Well, I'm, here's how I'm going to work it. I'm going to work through the passage just a couple of verses at a time, explain, give you some details. As I walk through the story, I'd invite you to compare and contrast what comes to your mind when you think of the We Three Kings of Orient are. You know, and you think of your nativity set, you think of sort of the, the imagination that we have about this story, because this text that I'm about to read is the only account in all of Scripture about this event. So whatever this teaches us, whatever this doesn't teach us, is all we know. It's all we have. So things in your mind that don't match up to this were probably put there by conjecture or tradition or some uh, Hollywood script writer. But this is what happened in this account with the Magi. And I invite, as I read it, I invite you to kind of compare and contrast your image of this event. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2, that's where we'll start. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Let's pause there. Let's answer the first important question. Who were the Magi? Um, magi is an interesting word. It actually comes from the, the root that, that we get magic from. Right? Now, does that mean that these were magicians? Well, not exactly. Um, magi in this context in the first century were probably, um, think about an astronomer and an astrologer combined together. So they would study the stars. They were experts in the stars. You know, astrology today is really just sort of superstitious. But back then, astrology was essentially a science. They believed that you could ascertain things on earth 
from gazing up at the sky. They believed that the sky sort of reflected what was happening down on earth. Now, why would they think that? Let's give a very brief lesson on ancient cosmology. Okay, cosmology, study of the cosmos. What do they believe to be true about the earth and the sky and the heavens? Uh, from their perspective, the earth was obviously flat. You know, it's all they understood at that point in time. And they saw the sky almost as a, a dome over the flat earth that held back the waters of the heavens. That's what they thought. And so you have this idea that you read about in, in ancient literature called the firmament. Well, what was the firmament? It was this idea that there's this dome above the earth called the sky that holds back the waters. And when it rained, it meant that a window of the firmament had been opened and the rain would come down. So the sky or the firmament was this uh, holding back this shield, if you will, and the stars were up in that firmament. They had no idea how huge the stars were, what they were made of, et cetera, et cetera. All they knew is, well, if there's water up there, then maybe what's happening in that night sky is events on earth are being reflected, almost like a reflecting pool above us. So they had this idea, scientific idea back then, that when something important had on earth, happened on earth, like the birth of a king or the death of someone significant or a war, that it'd be reflected in the sky. So here these men are, they're in Persia probably, they're far away. All we know is that they're east of Jerusalem. They're likely in Babylon because that's where the, the astrologers or that's where the, the greatest magi tended to be from. And they see something in the sky. And according to their system of interpretation leads them to think Jewish king. Now, what could they possibly have seen that would lead them to think Jewish king? These were not Hebrew scholars. By the way, there's only one reference in the Old Testament to a star coming. It's actually from the prophecy of Balaam. You know, that's a wild passage, by the way. Balaam's the guy with the donkey that talks, you know. And as Balaam is prophesying, he says, hey, a star will come out of Judah. Maybe they were familiar with that passage. I think more than likely that God just simply used their pagan or their Gentile system of astrology to point them to a Jewish king. And if you think that sounds far-fetched, let me just give you an example of how God might have done that. Not saying he did, but I'll give you an example of how he might have. From that perspective, each star in the sky represented something different. We know that in many places, these magi interpreted the planet Jupiter, which you know, they understood as a star, not as a planet, but they interpreted it as the star of royalty. We also know that in some circles, Saturn stood for the Jews, stood for the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. Now, imagine for just a minute that Jupiter and Saturn were to co-join in the sky. How do you think they would interpret that? Well, King Jews. Ah, a Jewish king has been born. Interestingly, and I'm not saying this is how God did it, but interestingly, you know, we've gone back and looked, and there were actually three different times somewhere around the birth of Christ that those two planets would have conjoined from our perspective here on earth. Very interesting. I'm not saying it was necessarily that. It could have been a nova that God put in the sky. Could have, some folks think it might have been a comet, etc. Could have just been something supernaturally. God just made his glory reveal. But my point is, he did this in such a way that Gentile pagan astrologers in a faraway land interpreted it to be a king of the Jews. There's some mystery there, but I think, I think it's fascinating. All right, for those of you that were sleeping during the cosmology lesson, you can wake up again. <laughs> Uh, we're going to keep moving on. Let's pick it up in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now let's pause there for a minute. Why would Herod be troubled? Well, 
He was a paranoid king. In fact, he didn't actually uh, rightfully deserve the throne. He was not from the proper line according to the Mosaic or the, the biblical law. Uh, Herod was an Edomite, which means he was a descendant of Esau, not of Jacob. And that should have disqualified him from sitting on the throne. But he worked a deal with the Romans who were in power and he was a very shrewd politician and he was sort of an, an improper king that was sitting on the throne. So if he hears of a legitimate king that had been born, it's gonna get his attention. He's probably thinking, how do these Persians even know about this anyway? I need to find out about this. Verse four, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Messiah was to be born. Herod apparently didn't know, right? He wasn't a theologian. Verse five, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And then they're gonna quote an Old Testament scripture here in verse six. It's Micah 5, two is what they're quoting. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Uh, let's keep going here to verse seven. Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Right? Tricky, tricky. Okay? We know Herod had no intent of worshiping Jesus. We know Herod's intentions because the rest of the chapter, we're going to find out he orders all the, the, the young children, two years and under, in Bethlehem slaughtered in, so that he can kill the Christ. And this would be very much in fitting with Herod's historical character. He had several of his own family members murdered so he could keep his um, tight grip on the throne. What he didn't know, that his own life was about to end several years after this event because God is in control, not Herod. Now, Herod is the one that calls the scribes. The scribes make the connection to where Jesus was gonna be born. So once again, we have this idea in our head of these, uh, these wise men or these magi that are following the star all the way from Jerusalem, or sorry, from Persia to Jerusalem. I don't think the star was on the move yet. I think they saw something in the sky the night that Jesus was born that led them to think, king of the Jews, where do you go to look for a king of the Jews? the capital city of the Jews, Jerusalem. It's only once they get to Jerusalem that their eye is then pointed toward Bethlehem. Let's see what happens once they start for Bethlehem. Verse nine. After hearing the king, they went their way. Now, now it's about to get really spectacular here. God's gonna show off. The star, which they'd seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Pause there. Stars don't move like that, guys. You know, neither do planets. This was definitely something supernatural at this point in time. Now, you know, the stars can move across the night sky just sort of typically normally. That wouldn't have gotten their attention. They're, they're experts on the stars. Um, Bethlehem sits a little bit to the south of Jerusalem. That means this star was kind of leading them from north to south. Stars don't move that way. What was this? Something supernatural that God had done to say, you're on the right path, Magi. Oh, Gentiles, you're almost there. Let me show you. The closest thing in scripture that I can find to anything like this is how God would lead the people of Israel in the wilderness by a, a, pillar, of, or a pillar of cloud in the day and the fire at night. 
right? So they would follow that flame. I think it could have been literally the glory of God that was appearing in the sky that was leading them. Who knows? God may have made it so that only they could see it or there was something there. We know this was mysterious. We know that at this point, this is miraculous. And so how do they respond to this supernatural occurrence? Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, uh, you have to, you know, have an insight into the Greek to understand how, how much hyperbole is being used here. Not hyperbole, but there's intentional redundance. There are four Greek words that are translated, they rejoiced with joy, exceedingly great. It's like redundance, 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 redundance. You know, they're happy. It's like they're joy, but the author is going out of the way just to talk about how their, their soul's literally bursting with joy. Now, how is this? They haven't even encountered the Christ child yet. They're seeing something supernatural. From a point of view of a scientist, even a first century scientist, you see something you've never seen before. It's a discovery. Not only was it a discovery as the star was on the move, but they also realized this is confirmation that we're on the right track. You know, whatever their perspective was of God or the gods or whatever they understood from their, you know, pagan perspective, having grown up in, in Persia, they knew that this was a sign that was being given to them for a specific purpose. And they are rejoicing with joy that is exceedingly great. Now, let's look at the next verse, 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, before I uh, apply this verse, because it, it's certainly rich with application, I want to debunk a couple of myths that we have in our mind. Uh, first of all, the We Three Kings song is totally wrong. You know? you know, you can still sing it. You know, don't feel guilty for singing it. It's kind of a catchy tune. But, but we don't know that there were three, first of all. We get that idea of three because there were three gifts. All we know from, from the Bible is there were at least two. In other words, it was plural. There might have been three, there might have been five, might have been 50. You know, I doubt 50, but, but it was some larger than one number. They gave three gifts. They weren't even kings, by the way, you know, in the sense of political rulers. They were magi. We've already talked about that. So we three kings of Orient are, you know, a little bit sketchy. The other thing that we have wrong is all of our, um, all of our nativity sets, are incorrect, all right? So the kings actually weren't there on the night that Jesus was born. They came later. So, you know, you don't have to go home and throw away your, your kings in the nativity set, right? I, I have them on mine, you know, and I just kind of separate them just a little bit, you know? <laughs> That's my theological pride, you know, <laughs> flowing through. But, but how do we know that they came later? Well, actually, look carefully at verse 11. After coming into the house... And in the Greek, the word is different. It couldn't mean a stable. It couldn't mean a cave or, you know, there's conjecture about where Jesus was born, but he was not born in the house. So it wasn't the night that he was born that they saw him. But the, the bigger evidence is what it says they saw the child. Now, in English, that doesn't help you a lot because you could call it infant a child or you could call a toddler a child. But this word in Greek never means infant. It's a different word. I, the better translation is toddler. So you'd never say, hey, um, you know, so-and-so just had a baby today. Let's go to the hospital and see that toddler. You just wouldn't say it. 
So it, it would not make sense that Jesus was still a, a newborn infant. More than likely, if you kind of add up travel times, what would have happened? More than likely, here's the scenario. The star appears in the sky on the night of Jesus' birth. They're still thousands of miles away in Babylon. They set off for their journey to find this king of the Jews. They then arrive in Jerusalem. That would have taken months, you know? Then from there, they're directed to Bethlehem. Now, that's a really short travel from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And they finally arrive. By this time, Jesus is no longer in the stable. Jesus is now in a home, but they're still in Bethlehem. Um, best guess is he's probably 12 months old, maybe 18 months old. That also matches the narrative later in chapter 2 when Herod sort of, you know, he, he figures how long was it? The child shall be, would be about two years or less. And so he kills all the babies, all the kids, toddlers that are two years and under. All right, let's keep on moving on. I want to kind of get to some application. Um, isn't it interesting that of all the individuals in the Christmas story that meet Jesus, the Magi's response is the most appropriate, I think. What's their response? Worship gifts. Worship and gifts. That's what they do. They fall on their face. They fall on their knees before him. They worship him and they give him gifts. Now there's probably some symbolism in these gifts. You know, I'm sure that they meant gold as a symbol of royalty because they were expecting him to be king. Uh, frankincense was sometimes associated with uh, the priesthood which also would have been appropriate for Christ. They may not have known that. Um, myrrh is often used for embalming isn't that fascinating? My guess is they did not know the spiritual significance of giving an embalming ointment to the child who was born to die for the sins of many. But God had all of this in mind, I believe, in these gifts. And let's finish out the story and, and hear what happens. Verse 12. After having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, they would have had to gone way out of their way. If you look at a map, Bethlehem's almost a suburb of Jerusalem. At least it is now in modern days. It's just not very far at all. So they would have gone up and around, probably taking the, the desert route or over on the, the way of the sea, the highway of the sea. And they would have gone out of their way in order to avoid going back to Jerusalem because God had warned them. So now they've had at least two or three supernatural revelations from God. In the night sky back in Babylon, the star is now reappeared and moving over the home where they were in Bethlehem. Uh, and then finally, this dream that they get from God. Certainly, uh, these Gentiles must have been changed by this whole experience. All right, what's the big idea of the passage? How do we sort of um, boil this down to its essence and then begin to apply it? I, I mentioned to you earlier, there's really two things you need to know. I'll, I'll get there in a minute. Uh, let, me, let me build up to that. The big idea, I think, of the passage is the child in Bethlehem is king, not just of the Jews, but he's king of the whole world. Why would God go out of his way to do the star and, and show up in Babylon and Persia with these strange men? They weren't Jewish. They didn't have any connection to the Hebrew scriptures. I think God is pulling back the curtain just a little bit and saying my plan all along for this child is to be king, not just of the Jews, but king of the whole world. Now, this is just a hint in this text. But think about Acts, which is obviously the book that we've been studying. Think about Acts 1.8. You'll be witnesses, Jesus says to his church, first in Jerusalem and Judea, but ultimately to the remotest parts of the earth. 
And how about later in Acts, we haven't gotten here yet, when Peter sees the sheet with all the unclean animals on it and God says, eat. And Peter says, no, I'm a good Jewish boy. I would never eat things that are unclean. And God says, what I have determined is now clean. Do not consider unclean. And then Gentiles now start coming into relationship with God through Christ. I think the Magi were the first Gentile worshipers of the Son of God. I don't think there's any debate. I mean, they, they're right here. They're in our Christmas story. So at the very beginning of, of Jesus' life, within the first year or two of Jesus' life, his ultimate mission of being the Savior, not just of the Jews, of the whole world, is being illustrated right here in this story of the Magi. I think that's the big idea of the text. Now, how does this relate to us? Well, we've been saying that Jesus is God's plan A for the world. We've been using that phrase both in our Acts study and in our Advent study. Kind of handy, they both begin with A. But the big idea is Jesus is God's plan A and there is no plan B. So you can start to connect the dots. Connect the dots to our global mission. Connect the dots to our church here at Fellowship Bible. Connect the dots even to what God would do in us in Advent of 2017. You know, theologians have this term for this idea that God has, from the beginning of time, always been about the same mission. And the mission is always to reconcile his creation back into right relationship with him. Theologians call that the missio dei, which is Latin term. It just means the mission of God. The mission of God. And, and I want to unpack that for just a minute because we're going to apply that to our lives. The missio dei is the central movement of God, the central purpose in everything that God does. This is his ultimate objective from the creation through the end of time. God is a missional God. God's on mission. He's up to something, you know. He's not just sort of up there kind of, you know, watching over things. He's on the move. He has a purpose. This is the mission of God. Listen to the way that uh, David Bosch wrote it. David Bosch was a, a missiologist, a, a theologian who studied the mission of God in particular. He gave his life to kind of that study. He died a number of years ago. But I love the way he defined this for us. Just, just take a listen and think about what we're doing at Fellowship right now. Mission is not primarily an activity of the church, but an attribute of God. God is a missionary God. To participate in mission is to participate in the movement of God's love toward people, since God is a fountain of sending love. I love that little definition of God at the end. God is a fountain of sending love. And I love what he's saying, like, mission is not just one department of the church. Mission is an attribute of God. And so when we join God on his mission, in whatever way that is, he calls us to, we're actually living out part of our image bearer of God that is implanted in us, the imago dei, the image of God. So you see, we are to be about mission because God is about mission. So let me give you this as the theological reason that we do global Christmas, not global September or global July or, you know, whatever. Christmas ultimately is the greatest moment up till this point in history where the missionary God lived out his mission on the earth by sending his son from a faraway place to share, to love, to give, to teach, ultimately to die and be raised again. God's a missionary God. Jesus was sent on a mission. When did he arrive? Christmas. So we celebrate global Christmas, 
not just because this time of year is a good time to be generous and tip your hat to your creator. It's because we're representing the fact that we are joining God on the mission that he began. So this begins to get to our application. There's two things you need to know, and I want you to see in order to get there that you are in the story of the Magi. The Magi's story is your story too. Let me explain. You boil this whole story down. What it is is a group of Gentiles that received revelation from God that led them to Jesus Christ. Is that anybody's story in the room? A Gentile who received revelation from God that ultimately led you to Jesus Christ. If you're a Christ follower this morning and you weren't born Jewish, that's your story. All right, that's 99% of us in the room. Gentiles who at some point in time received revelation from God that led you to Christ. Now, your revelation was not literally a star. You know, if it is, come tell me. That'd be cool to know. Uh, your, your revelation was a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandparent who taught you God's word. Your revelation might have been a friend in college or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, or your spouse or a coworker. At some point in time, God said, I've revealed truth in my word and I'm gonna use an instrument to proclaim that truth to you so that you might find Jesus. And that revelation from God, which came via a person who told you about Christ or a sermon or a book you read, who knows how it came to you, it ultimately was rooted in God's revelation, the scripture, and came to you and began a journey in your life. Not that different than these wise men. Let me explain. You had to leave your home country your home country of independence from God, your home country, and some of you, of rebellion from God. For some of you, your home country was a, a country of, of religion and self-righteousness where you sort of built a system that you didn't really need Jesus to save you because you were just fine by yourself, thank you very much. Right? So, so some of you were living in rebellion, some of you were living in, in self-righteousness, both of those are actually rebellion, uh, if, you, if you think about it, and you had to leave your home country and take a journey according to the revelation of God that Jesus is your king and you came and you saw him, you worshiped him, and you bowed down. That's your journey, okay? That's your spiritual journey. Another way to say it, okay? Now, give me a little license here. I'm, I'm gonna use some figurative language, but another way to say it is at some point in your story, God put a star in your sky that led you to Jesus. Amen, Amen. yeah. And it was no accident. It was no accident that these Few magi were the ones, you know? If it was in the sky for everyone to see, why didn't, you know, millions of people come, whatever. These are the ones God knew according to their story, according to their system of interpretation, what they thought about the stars, what they've been studying. He knew that that event in that sky would ultimately lead them to Jesus. You're no different. God pulled you out of your rebellion. He pulled you out of your self-righteousness. He pulled you out of your apathy or your doubt or your agnosticism or whatever it is that he pulled you out of if you're here as a follower of Christ today. And he said, I want to show you my son Jesus. He is your hope. He is your king. Now, some of you this morning, you haven't taken the journey of the Magi yet. You're still in your homeland. This morning, even, God is saying, look at my revelation. Look at the one who is the king. 
Leave your country of rebellion. Leave your country of apathy. Leave your country of doubt. Leave your country of agnosticism. Step into what I would call you to by the revelation of my word, even through the preaching of God's word this morning. He is leading you to Christ. Now, this gets to the two things you need to know, just two. I've probably said 200. But here's the two things I really want you to remember. You, as someone who has been brought to Christ through the revelation of God, you are now, number one, an object of God's love. And you are now, number two, an instrument of God's love. That's it. Those are the two. It may sound anticlimactic, but I want to dig deep into that. You are both an object of God's love and you're an instrument of God's love. Those magi, this would have been the pivotal event in their lives. Why did God choose them? He just said, by his particular love, his particular grace, he's going to choose these three or two or 15 or however many there were. They became objects of God's love. Now, because their story is recorded, because their worship is recorded, we're still talking about them today. You see, they've become instruments of God's love. That's your story too. You've become an object of God's love so that you could also become an instrument of God's love. And if you're not living out the missional part of your calling as a Christian, I'm going to actually say it's because you haven't fully understood the fact that you're an object of love. Let me tease that out a little bit more. You are an object of God's love. That means you are the objective of Christmas. You are the reason the missionary God sent his missionary son to come and suffer and die and be raised again. You're the objective of Christmas. You're the object of God's fountain of sending love, as David Bosch would put it. And not only that, but that love that you have received, that forgiveness, that acceptance, that grace, it does not terminate on you. It can't. In fact, the best things in life, you just naturally want to share. You know, like, don't raise your hand, but I wonder if anybody's seen the new Star Wars movie yet. I ran into a family last night. They'd just seen it, you know, and I haven't seen it yet. And they're just talking. I was like, don't tell me too much, you know. You know, the the greatest um, concert you've ever been to, I guarantee you allowed that experience to flow through you and you told other people about it. The greatest movie you've seen, the greatest moment in your life, the redemption story of a relationship coming back together, the best gift you've ever given. Listen, these things never terminate on you. In fact, that's what worship is in a sense. It's sort of taking something and allowing it to flow through you and flow out of you. You're an object of love called to be an instrument of love. And once you really get these two things, everything changes. I, I really believe everything changes. And some of you have been in a church a long time and you're like, well, I do the Christian thing and I know the Christian story, but I don't feel like I'm an object of God's love. I don't feel like there's anything in me that God would choose or delight in. I don't feel like he sits on his throne and has joy and pleasure as he thinks about me. Now, you notice the response of the Magi when they encounter Christ. What do they do? They worship and they give. 
I think as the good news of Jesus actually begins to sink from your head to your heart and begins to actually form and shape you down deep inside of you and your affections are transformed, I actually think what happens is you begin to do those two things, worship and give. Worship and give. And by the way, these magi were not compelled to worship Jesus. You know, the toddler Jesus was in no position to demand worship. He didn't look like a king. The toddler Jesus had no power to demand their gifts. He was just a little kid in a poor family. They gave freely. They gave with exceedingly great joy, voluntarily. This is how we are to worship. This is how we are to give. So, so let me start moving us toward a point of closure by just talking about worship and giving briefly. And then we're actually going to have a chance to do both on the back end of our service. Worship is an act of submission. It's no accident that these men were on their knees. You know, according to verse 11, they, they, they fell down in worship. Actual worship is an act of submission. It's, it's saying, uh, God, you're above me. You're a, my creator. You're my redeemer. I'm below and all that I have I owe to you. Now, t- let's be honest. We, in, there's something in us that doesn't like submitting. I don't like submitting to anybody, man. I get pulled over by a police officer. I'm like, you know, I'm, I want to bristle at his authority. It's like, I was only going seven miles over the speed limit. Come on, give me a break, right? I remember growing up, my mom and dad, their authority, I bristled against that. We bristle against our bosses. I mean, the, the theme in our culture right now is stick it to the man. We do not like being under authority. And yet, being under authority is the posture you must have in order to worship. And worship is when you will most live out your identity as a fully flourishing man or woman because it's what you are designed for. Now, let me give you some help. If you have trouble submitting yourself to the authority of God, if you have trouble worshiping, in other words, I don't think you fully internalize the fact that you are an object of God's love. The one over authority over you has nothing but good intentions for you, has nothing but love for you. As a father loves his children, so the Lord has compassion on you. You are an object of his love. Only when you really get that can you actually worship. Not only will you worship, but once you get that, you'll begin to open your hands as well. You see, when these magi opened their treasures, as the scripture tells us, and they gave these gifts, what they were actually doing is they're saying, this is right and fitting for one whose authority we are under. We have bowed down, now we give. Worship and giving actually come hand in hand. In fact, I'd say worship is one of the way, or giving is one of the ways that you worship. That's why we include it in our worship service every week as part of our liturgy here at Fellowship. Again, once you realize that your core identity is an object of God's love in order to be an instrument of God's love, giving comes really easy. So if you have trouble giving, if you have trouble being generous, I don't think you fully understood that you are, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, an object of God's love made to be an instrument of God's love. I want to challenge you on something, and this has nothing to do with our global offering. We'll talk about that in a second. But I want to challenge you to think this thought. What might you give to Jesus? What might you give to the Christ child? Right? What might you give to your Savior in the Advent season of 2017? And I'm not even talking about money. You know, how do you give anything to God? He already owns it. 
So you might say, well, you know, like the song, you know, I'll give him my life. Well, you know, that, that, that's great, and that's actually right, and that's actually true. But think about it this way. He already owns that. You know, if he wants your life, he can have it tonight. When you're sleeping, you could just be done. All right? So how do you give anything to someone that has everything? Well, think about how you give gifts to your dad. <laughs> Dads don't need anything. Like that's, you know, it's hard to buy for dads, is it not? So what do you do? You're like, well, I don't know what he needs, but, but, but I hope he likes this, and I hope he can use this. So you get him work gloves, you get him socks, you get him a tie, you know, whatever. He doesn't need it, right? Let's be honest. He doesn't need it, but we hope that he likes it. We hope that he can use it. That's the same way you give to God. He doesn't need anything, but your gifts bring him delight because they honor him and he will always use them. How will he use your gifts? According to his mission. Because he is a missional God and that's what he's always up to. So we open our hands and give, knowing that God will be delighted with our gifts. He will be honored with our gifts, and he will use our gifts. By the way, look at the connection to the text. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, those gifts were used throughout the life of Jesus. I've got to imagine that poor family had to have some financial provision to hide out in Egypt for a couple of years until Herod the Great died. That's how that gold went to use. I'm convinced of it. And the other gifts as well. God used them according to his mission. What was his mission? Well, the life of Christ had to be preserved, had to be protected, had to be cared for so he could grow up, so that he could die for our sins, be raised from the dead. He will always use our gifts according to his mission. Not a penny given to God is wasted by God. Now, this next year, as you're thinking about what would it look like for me to give something to Christ in Advent 2017 that would carry on the next year, some of you, you need to give something that's not even financial. You need to give a new posture of submission. Some of you need to make a big investment in your marriage through re-engage. Some of you need to go to those names you wrote down a few weeks ago of those that don't know Christ and you just need to pray for them. You need to knock on a door or make a phone call or engage that conversation. What a gift that would be. Some of you need to take your sin seriously, like we talked about a few weeks ago, and said, man, I'm gonna step out of the shadows and I'm gonna step into the light and I'm gonna begin with confession. Y'all, that's a gift. You see, what gift will you give to your king? He doesn't need it, but it will honor him and he will always put it to use. So let's pray and then we'll have a chance to worship and give as we close our service. Our Father, we call you Father because you are good. And we could not believe that if you had not sent your Son to die for us and graft us into the family, to bring us into the family of those that know you and know your goodness. Without that, all of us would still be wandering around, searching for hope, searching for meaning, but at some point in our stories, you put a star in our skies that led us to Jesus. And we pause and we thank you for that. The, that parent, that grandparent, a friend or relative or a stranger or author of something that we read, whatever it was, God, was revelation that you used, rooted in your word, you used an instrument. And now, God, it's our turn to be that instrument. And so I pray, Father, even as we open up our hands and write our checks and, and give to this global offering, that we would have a sense of joy, that we would give not out of guilt or duty or obligation, but it would be exceeding great 
joy because we recognize we are loved and that sets us free. And we recognize that we can be used. Little, little us can be used according to this grand mission that you've been doing since the beginning of time. And thank you for this opportunity we have to be a part of that. May our gifts honor you and we know that you'll use them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.